As always, it is my privilege to bring us God's Word. Um, last September, we launched a year-long sermon series at our church called Childlike Wonder um, with the aim of um, fostering, rediscovering um, Scripture through the eyes and the posture of a child. And um, if you've been with us um, for any length of time, we've been in the Old Testament and we've been going through every story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a very well-known children's Bible. And now, five, six months later, we are finally at the point in the story where we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're finally getting into the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, but hopefully, if there's anything you've been able to see um, with these stories that we've looked at thus far is that every story, ultimately, old and new, Every corner of the Bible ultimately is a story about Jesus, is a story that has its ultimate climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you remember all the way at the beginning of our series in Genesis 3, when God says, um, a seed will come from a woman um, who will crush the serpent's head, we believe that seed was talking about Jesus. When we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham has to lay his beloved son Isaac down at the altar, we believe that is a picture of Jesus, God's beloved son, who unlike Isaac, was slain on the altar as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When we read the story of Joseph, the man who was rejected by his own family, sold into slavery, stripped naked, cast and ab abandoned and cast down into a pit, we believe that was a picture of Jesus, of the suffering Christ. When we read the story about Moses, the one who liberated God's people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, we believe that story was meant to not tell us how great Moses was, it was meant to point us to Jesus, the great liberator who would come and free all of humanity from the slavery and bondage of sin and death. When we read about David slaying Goliath with the most unexpected weapon, a sling and a stone, we believe that that was pointing us to a greater David, the true and rightful king, to Jesus, who also slayed the Goliath of sin and death with the most unexpected weapon, a Roman cross. And so hopefully you've been able to see that everything has been leading us to this point, that all of scripture whispers the name of Jesus. And so hopefully you're as excited as I am um, as we actually now get to this point in the series when we get to meet this Jesus. So if you're able, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. If you're following along on a mobile device, um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. It's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. This is the reading of God's Word. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we jump into God's word together. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you're new to Christianity, there are four books in the Bible that offer historical, historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so if you're curious about Christianity, these books are a great place to start. Um, probably do not start in Leviticus or Judges or something like that. Um, get into the life and ministry of Jesus. And um, each book essentially tells the same story with slightly different emphases because uh, they're written to different audiences, they're written in different voices, um, but they have some kind of, some of the same events. And the baptism of Jesus, which we just read about today, is one of the few events that's actually found in all four books. For comparison, even the birth of Jesus is only found in two of the four Gospels, but every single one of the Gospel writers made it a point to talk about the baptism of Jesus, which tells you just how significant this event is. If the Bible were a movie, this would be the moment where every ancient reader would stop in their tracks, they would start to get hyped because they know something significant was gonna happen. Um, you know, everyone knows that scene at the end of Endgame, one of the greatest scenes ever. Um, you know, Captain America on his last legs, Thanos is about to win, and then he, you hear the words, on your left. And the portal just opens up out of nowhere. Black Panther walks through. Everyone starts freaking out. Um, they know something's going to happen. And Thanos isn't defeated. We don't know what exactly is going to happen. The Avengers haven't won yet. But you know that something significant is about to go down. Well, this is that moment. And you have to understand, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were 400 years of prophetic silence when not one word from any prophet. So that means that for four centuries, the people of God looked up to heaven and they said, God, when are you gonna show up? Like it's getting dark in the world, God. Are you there? And for four centuries, all they got was utter silence. And then all of a sudden you turn the first page of the book of Mark, this is the first gospel, and you read these words in verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. It's like that portal that just opens up just when you thought it was over, just when you thought darkness and evil had won, heaven is torn open and God appears. And you don't know yet, I mean, we know on this side of the cross, we know the end of the story, but readers, they didn't know yet exactly how the story was gonna end. They didn't know what all of this meant, but they knew something was about to go down because God had arrived. 
Now, everything in Mark 1 leading up to this moment when Jesus is baptized is rich with meaning, and, and we're going to walk through this an entire passage here. If you're taking notes, here's how we're going to unpack this text, okay? The messenger, the method, and the Messiah, okay? The messenger, the method, and the Messiah, okay? Got to love the alliteration, always, okay? First, the messenger. Um, at the beginning of Mark 1, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist, who Mark connects to this Old Testament prophet, uh, promise found in Isaiah 40, that saying that before the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, like you would know God was coming and you would know the kingdom of God was near because there would be a messenger, a voice calling out in the wilderness. So the Jews for hundreds of years were holding on to this prophecy and they were looking for this messenger with open eyes and open hearts because they knew if that messenger showed up, it meant the kingdom of God was near. And so you have this man, John the Baptist, who appears in the wilderness and the guy is weird, okay? He's, he's dressed in camel's hair. He's got a leather belt around his waist. Um, he eats weird food. He eats locusts and wild honey. Okay, honestly, he would fit right in in LA. Okay, a lot of people just like him in Highland Park where I live. Okay, um, but, but this isn't just random. Okay, Mark specifically describes John the Baptist in the exact same way the prophet Elijah is described in the book of 2 Kings. And he wants us to make this connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a, a nod to the Old Testament prophets. This is an awakening of these promises that have laid dormant for hundreds of years. And so there's all this suspense, and then John the Baptist's message, according to Mark, is this. If you read verse 7, it says, And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist comes, and he has one role, to be a signpost pointing to Jesus. Now, I think John the Baptist is one of the most underrated characters in the entire Bible, and I love John the Baptist, and we don't get too much about his life here in Mark's account, but we do get a lot more detail um, in other gospel accounts. And one thing you learn about John the Baptist is that he actually had a lot of followers. He had his own disciples. He had people following him around. He had people hanging on every word. He had people that he was teaching, that he was investing his time and his life in. He was the hottest influencer in town, right? He, he, and every time people are like, I wonder who this guy is, every time the religious leaders approach him and they say, who are you? He always answers, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him. John the Baptist knew very clearly who he was and who he wasn't. And every time they wanted to crown him, he was like, no, 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 don't look at me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the voice calling in the wilderness. There's someone coming after me, the Lamb of God, whose sandals I'm not worthy enough to stoop and untie. And I want you to think about, like, in John, in John, uh, the Gospel of John, there's a story. When John the Baptist is hanging out with his disciples, Jesus is walking by. He says, look, the Lamb of God. And we read that immediately his disciples left John and went to Jesus. And it didn't matter to John. For us, some of us, that would be like earth, like that would be heartbreaking. 
to lose these people you've invested in your entire life. But everywhere he goes, he's like, look, the Lamb of God, it's not me. I'm just the messenger. Go follow him. And this is such a countercultural thought in L.A., in this city that's all about me. That's all about my glory and my fame and my name in a culture that's all about getting people to look at me, to elevate me, to praise me. You have this man, John the Baptist, who has a singular vision for his life. He must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become less. I wonder how might our lives change if that became the singular purpose of our lives. I wonder how our lives would be different if every morning before we walked into work, before we walked into the office, we said that to ourselves, he must become greater, I must become less. I wonder how our relationships would be transformed, how, 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 how differently it would reshape the way we respond to failure, how we make decisions in life, how we spend our time and money. If every day we regularly said to ourselves when we woke up, he must become greater, and I must become less. One of my pastors um, growing up, he told me something I will never forget. He said, Jason, my prayer for you is that for the rest of your life, you would become a window. And I was like, what? A window? And he said, you know what makes a window great? He says, nobody looks at a window and says, that's a great window. He says, you know what makes a window great? It's when you're able to look through the window and you say, that is a great view. What a beautiful view. And he said, I pray that your entire life, that would be what is said about you. Not what a great window, what a great view. What a clear window that I can see the beauty of what's through it. This is John the Baptist, the messenger. He must become greater. I must become less. But then we move from the messenger to the method. John's method of preparing people for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God was very interesting. We read that he appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then we read that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. First thing I want you to notice is where all of this is happening, okay? John appears in the wilderness, and then all of Jerusalem has to go out and meet him in the wilderness. And I believe this is telling us something profound about Jesus, that if you're looking for Jesus, if you want to meet Jesus, if you want to encounter this king, there's probably one place you need to go to the wilderness, that if you want to see Jesus, if you want to meet Jesus, the place you will find him is in the wilderness. The wilderness is a recurring theme in the Bible, and when the Bible talks about the wilderness, it's talking about the barren desert wasteland where there is no life. It's a place where nothing grows, where all the wells are dry, where there's no food, no water, Right? It's a place where nothing can survive unless God himself intervenes. And strangely, time and time again, the wilderness is the place God chooses to meet his people. Where did God meet Moses at the burning bush? In the wilderness. 
Where did God meet Hagar? In the wilderness. Where did God meet Elijah? In the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of encounter. Why? It's the place where you lose all the things you thought you needed to live and you have nothing to cling to except to God. Now, it's very interesting. We read that all the people in Jerusalem went out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. And this is very strange because back then, Jews weren't baptized. Baptism was a ritual only reserved for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And they needed to be baptized because the Jews saw them as unclean, immoral, as unworthy. And they said, if you want to get in the presence of the God of Israel, you have to go take a bath and you have to go get clean. And yet we read that everyone, all of Jerusalem, had to go out to the wilderness to meet John and to be baptized. And this is strange. John is saying, Jews, Gentiles, Everyone has to come to the wilderness. Everyone needs to be baptized here because it's in the wilderness where you realize it doesn't matter that you're a Jew. It doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter what titles and accolades and positions and wealth you have. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are. It doesn't matter how many times you've read your Bible. All of these things aren't that impressive in the wilderness. And he's saying that the only way you're going to encounter God is for you to be stripped of your self-sufficiency and realize that these are not the things that can sustain you. Maybe today you are in the wilderness. Maybe you're sitting here and you feel alone. Maybe you're going through something in your marriage or in a relationship or just personally that your experience and your degrees and your intelligence cannot fix. You know, having lost several loved ones to cancer now, and as I continue to walk with my mom, who is continuing to battle stage four cancer, one of the things you learn very quickly is that cancer is like a wrecking ball that destroys everything in its path. And it's very frustrating because it's one of those things in life, you can't just throw money at it and have it go away. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are and where you went to school, cancer is cancer. And it wrecks you and everyone in its path. And when you're dealing with it yourself or when you're, when you're walking with loved ones who have cancer, it's a very frustrating feeling because you feel extremely helpless, extremely fragile, and extremely disoriented. And yet what I've learned and in talking to so many different people in our church who are in wilderness seasons of their life, I can tell you this, that it's in the moments when you feel most helpless, when all the wells in your life have run dry, when you are emptied and at the bottom, it's in those moments we look up and we see God there. Now God is always there, but often it's the wilderness that tunes our ears to hear him. It's the wilderness that tunes our eyes to see him. There's a popular saying that, that says, you can enjoy God on the mountaintops, but you get to know him in the valley. And it's so true. On the mountaintops, you can enjoy God's good gifts. You can enjoy God's provision. But in the valley, is when you get to know his presence, 
when you experience his nearness and his deep love for you. This is why the first place the Spirit takes Jesus after his baptism is the wilderness. We didn't read this part, but the very next verse, it says, then the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He hears a voice that says, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately, the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness. It's like, I love you, and now let's go into the wilderness so I can show you just how much I love you. There's something about the wilderness that allows us to meet Jesus. If you are in a wilderness season in your life and you are feeling helpless and empty and hopeless and you're starting to see all the wells you used to run to start to run dry, know that you are primed for an encounter with God. Because the wilderness does not signal God's absence, it simply makes us increasingly aware of his presence. We become so much more sensitive to his leading and to his nearness. Now, along with where all of this is taking place, I also want to draw your attention to the way these people were being baptized. We read that all were being baptized by John, by John. Now, for us, it's completely normal, and it's probably like you're used to seeing a pastor stand up here and baptize babies and baptize adults. Like, you're used to seeing that. Back then, that would have been a weird sight because nobody baptized like that. Not only was baptism reserved for just a few, for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism, but if you did need to get baptized, that was a ritual that the individual always performed himself. It was always, you go take a bath, and you go dip in the water, and you go cleanse yourself. And now yet, for the first time in history, people have to be baptized by someone else. And let me tell you why this is so profound. You see, our tendency as human beings, when we feel backed into a corner, when we feel like our life is starting to tear at the seams, when we're seeing relationships unravel, when we feel empty, our tendency is to always try to fix ourselves. We try to pull ourselves up. We work harder, we do better, we listen to more podcasts, we read more self-help books, we go to the next conference, we listen to more gurus, we try to get better, we try to fix ourselves. We try to control our lives, we try to control other people, sometimes we even try to control God. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who say, I really need to go back to church because I gotta get my life back on track. And usually what they mean is that my life is in shambles and I need God to help me and I believe that God will help me if I become more religious. If I do more spiritual things, if I start going out to church more regularly, if I start serving the church more regularly, but don't you see, those are two sides of the same coin. The fact that all these religious Jews these are people who followed every cleansing ritual, who've memorized scripture, who've prayed and fasted, still have to be baptized by John, tells you that even on our best days, there is nothing we can do to fix ourselves. There is nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. We must be cleansed by another. And this brings me to the final point the Messiah, 
the Messiah. Mark opens his book with the words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the phrase Son of God was a phrase in the ancient world reserved for kings. And Mark is intentionally using subversive political language here when he says Son of God because they called Caesar a Son of God. But here Mark opens his book with this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's saying there's a new king and a new kingdom that's come. And when John the Baptist says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, that's not just a metaphorical statement, that's a literal statement. Anytime there was an announcement that a new king was coming, it was like announcing that the Olympics were going to be in your city. The entire city started creating roads. They started creating infrastructure. They literally started preparing ways for the kings to come so they could travel because kings in those days did not travel the way commoners traveled. So everyone in the city was all up in a frenzy preparing a way for the new king to come. And so Mark is doing something masterful at the beginning of his book. He's building all this hype. He's signaling that a new king and a new kingdom is coming. You have this messenger, John the Baptist, saying, get ready, because this guy who's coming is so much better than me. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even going to be worthy enough to stoop down and untie his sandals. And then Jesus appears, and then it's like, this is the most anticlimactic entrance of a main character ever in history. You get all of these verses at the beginning that talk about how John the Baptist is dressed, where he's found, where he is. Jesus gets one verse, and it's verse 9. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's it. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Two things I want to mention about that. First of all, the fact that Mark mentions the fact that Jesus is from Nazareth is like a backhanded insult. Because Nazareth is the boonies. Nobody knew Nazareth. So literally, that's like saying, like, at that time, Jesus appeared from Palmdale. Okay, or something like that. You, sorry. If you're from Palmdale, I'm sorry. Okay? We love you. We see you. You're accepted. Uh, Jesus loves you, okay? It, it's so, it's, he says, he's from Nazareth in Galilee. And then the second thing I want you to notice is this parallel, intentional parallel, verse, verses 9 and verse 5. In verse 5, Mark says, all of Jerusalem came out confessing their sins. They were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Verse 9, Jesus came out and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. There's an intentional parallel. Why does he do it? And it's as though he wants us to be crystal clear that everything that happens to all the commoners, to everyone else, happens exactly the same way to Jesus. Why does Mark do this? And how does this even make sense? Jesus is the Son of God. He has no sins to confess. He doesn't need to repent. Why does he need to be baptized? He certainly doesn't need to step into this dirty water. And yet what Mark is trying to show us is that this king is different from any other king you've ever seen. He doesn't come to stand above his people, but to become one of them.
People don't go to meet this king in a palace. This king comes to meet them in the wilderness. You know what this means? It means that there is no place Jesus is unwilling to go to meet you. In your deepest loneliness, in your deepest shame, in your deepest exhaustion and humiliation, the picture is Jesus walking through the crowd, walking through the commoners, and stepping into the dirty water of the Jordan where everyone is confessing their sins and being baptized. And we know this because this king's road does not lead to a throne. It leads to a cross. You know, it's interesting. When you read that phrase, prepare the way for the Lord, every other time Mark uses that word, that Greek word for a way in the Gospel of Mark, he's always referencing Jesus' road to Calvary. And it's like at the beginning, he wants you to know the way that you're preparing, that way moves to the cross. And when this Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is baptized in the Jordan River alongside sinners, he's identifying with humanity and he's giving us a glimpse of what he came to do. 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why in Matthew's version of the story, when John the Baptist tries to deter Jesus from getting baptized by him, Jesus is like, we have to do this, John. It's only proper to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, I need to become like them so that they can become like me. And when Jesus comes up out of the water and heaven is torn open and the Father says, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, the idea is that those who have placed their trust in Jesus also get to hear those words. You are my son. You are my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Paul in Romans 6 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Christ identified with sinners in his death so that sinners might identify with Christ in his resurrection. You know, Mark is the only gospel writer who uses the imagery of heaven being torn open. Okay, and I, I love this. Like, I love that image of heaven being torn open to describe this moment. And I love this because it's this little Easter egg we get at the beginning of the story that prepares us for what happens at the end. Because you see, at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark 15, Jesus is hanging on a cross and he breathed his last breath and we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Heaven was torn open at the beginning, and heaven was torn open at the end. What once separated God from humanity was no more. We who were once far off were brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Friends, can I submit to you this morning that wherever you're at, whatever season you're in, heaven can break forth into your life today because of what Jesus has done. The portal has been torn open so you can experience the fullness of the Father's heart for you today. 
You can experience his loving presence today. You can experience his love and his joy and his peace today. All you need to do is acknowledge that you cannot save yourself and you need a savior. You know, the word repentance has gotten such a bad rap um, because it, it's come to be associated with fire and brimstone. Like, you know, you think about the people on the, tr uh, on the, on the corners of the streets um, saying, repent or go to hell, right? And it's become really associated with shame and fear and guilt. And the image we have is of this angry God who's like, if you don't stop sinning, if you don't stop doing bad things, if you don't clean up your act, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to smite you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike you down. But friends, that's religion. That is not the gospel. I saw a tweet this week that said this. That said, religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I got to call dad. Two completely different mindsets. I think for many of us, our view of God is, I messed up. Oh my goodness, dad's going to kill me. Got to go to church. Got to get my life cleaned up. The gospel is, I messed up. I got to call dad over and over and over again. You see, repentance at its core just means to turn around, to have a change of heart. It means you stop running from God and instead you turn around and you see God moving toward you. You turn around and you receive God's love. We don't change ourselves to get God to love us. God's love changes us, turns us into the people he's called us to be. This is why God validates Jesus as his son whom he loves before Jesus heals one person, before he casts out one demon, before he performs one miracle. Nothing Jesus does is ever to get love. Everything Jesus does is always a response to the love he's received. So it doesn't matter if this is your first time in church. It doesn't matter if this is your thousandth time in church. It doesn't matter what kind of week you had. It doesn't matter where you were last night or what you were doing. There is an opportunity for you to turn around today, to behold the love of God for you again today. Because when you learn to behold the loving gaze of the Father and you hear his voice saying, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, it frees you to be the person you were called to be. So friends, this morning, may we repent. May we turn around. And may we let heaven break forth into our lives. Let's pray. As our worship team comes up, I want to give us a moment just to sit in that. And especially for those of us who find themselves in a wilderness season of life, when we feel emptied and at the bottom. I pray that you would feel and experience God's nearness now.
Jesus, we thank you that in the moments we feel alone, in the moments we feel tired and weary, in the moments we feel crushed by life, crushed by the weight of our shame or our sin, we thank you that you're not a God who, who leaves us there by ourselves and waits for us to clean our lives up. We thank you that you are a God who from the very beginning has come to us in the wilderness. You're a God who at the beginning of creation hovered over the emptiness and the dark like a mother bird hovering over her young. And then you came and you put on skin and bones and you became a man in order that you would identify with our brokenness. And so God, this morning I pray that more than anything, you would help us to feel your nearness. You would help us to experience your love and that your Holy Spirit would move us to turn around, to have a change of mind and a change of direction, and that we would see the Father pursuing us again. We thank you for this word today. We love you. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.